Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 57, the zoo archaeology of Star Wars, episode 2, Attack of the Alex. <laughs> this is Archaeo Animals, the podcast all about zoo archaeology. And Star Wars, apparently. Yeah. Um, and I'm your host, Alex Patrick, and with me for a very interesting experience about Star Wars is... Simona Falanga. So, okay, this first part, I, we can't really do this on a podcast medium, but for the, the listeners at home, please imagine the, like, crawl, you know, from, like, the films. The yellow text, the, it's the yellow text, it's the moving yellow text that everybody talks about. The kind of yellow text that my grandfather used to say, quick, quick, check behind the TV, see if you can see it. Stupid me being quite young that's a that's a really good bit actually i know i i i fell for it quite a lot um yeah i i did i could never catch it oh you weren't fast enough i don't know i've really tried but he said to me look do or do not there is no try all right we got a couple another couple of minutes of quotes you want to get out of the way before we uh, keep going with the episode or what anakin your focus determines your reality so in that sense, as long as we maintain focus on the episode, it should get done. Well, we'll see. Anyway, so imagine the crawl, right? It's going, it's going up into space. It's yellow text. And so here's the recap of the last episode, because this is a sequel to our first Star Wars episode. So at that time, Simona was gone, lost somewhere outside the Outer Rim. Alex had... Okay, I'm going to try to do this with my, my COVID voice. Ultimate power! And decided to do a Star Wars episode because my brain was broken a very long time ago when my father showed me those VHS tapes. So we ended up not really talking about the archaeology of Star Wars, but we did talk about the importance of archaeology and cultural personal heritage and why it's so important in the Star Wars mythos and a lot about the expanding universe, I feel like. I mean, that's good stuff to talk about, you know. Yeah, it's what I care about. And that's what's more important. It's what I want to talk about. (laughs) Anyway, so for today's episode, we will actually, this time, I promise, talk about the creatures of Star Wars and explore their potential osteology and zooarchaeology. So like the last episode, we will cover creatures in the current canon, aka the things that have been solidified as canonical lore by Disney, as well as what they refer to as legends, aka what Disney does not consider canon anymore, also referred to as the expanded universe, which I like to see myself as a bit of a scholar of, uh, as a very lonely nerd child who read like all the books. Very, very sad, very lonely. Um, Once you start down the dark path, forever will it dominate your destiny. (sighs) 
It's so easy. There are so many of them. There are so many over-the-top quotes from Star yeah. Wars. It's almost Ridiculous. like there's so... It's almost like it's a huge franchise that has been in all sorts of medium. Yes, but I've just managed to quote just from the, th- the four, five, and six. So, like... Anyway, more importantly, because... <laughs> what was that for? Or was that sarcasm? No, me. Who? Sarcastic. No. Speaking of Simona, uh, Simona hasn't said a, a word really in this episode, and I think we should explore why that may be. Simona, what is your experience with Star Wars? <laughs> I have watched the first two films, not one and two, I'm told. The first films as they came out in chronological order, which I'm told a new hope and return of the yes. Jedi. No. no. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's episode four, A New Hope, and episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, oh, is what you watched. I think I may have watched Sorry. Return of the Jedi. I don't know. Did, have you seen the little little Ewoks? The little yes. adorable bear creatures? I don't like okay, them. so then you have seen. I don't like them. Oh, I like them. I liked R2D2. When I was a kid, I loved Wicket. I thought Wicket was so cool. Uh, when I was born, I guess my parents were planning on having a child for a couple of years. So I had the biggest collection of Return of the Jedi merchandise. And I wasn't born until a couple of years after that film came out. So I had lots of, I had a Wicket plushie, all this stuff. So I think that's why I tend to really like it. I've watched them as an adult. But again, only those two, potentially three films. It's been a few years. I can't remember. So as you may have gathered, I'm not as into the Star Wars lore as in, which is a good way of saying I'm not into Star Wars lore at all. What we've done for this, because of course we're going to be covering several creatures, Alex has kindly sent me a variety <laughs> of images of the creatures that we're going to cover. <laughs> and I have purposely decided not to look at them. So we can do a little bit of Simona reacts as strange creatures from Star Wars. Yes, this will be very similar to, I think, the Pokemon episode in some respects. Pokemon <laughs> episode. I, I, I erased that from my brain. Yeah, I do remember you absolutely having your brain melted on the concept of Pokemon being born from eggs and some Pokemon being ghosts. Oh, yes, the, the oviparous ghost. Yes, you, you kind <laughs> oh, of no. absolutely lost it. No wonder why you blocked that out. It was a bit traumatic for you, I think. No, why did you, why did you, oh. Because it's fun, Simona. It's fun for me as someone who doesn't know much about zoo archaeology, yet hosts a podcast about it, but I know a lot about pop culture. So, this is my time to shine, finally. But yeah, so we will start off our episode talking about the nerf. Yes, from the iconic line, you scruffy-looking nerf herder from episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. Oh, I watched that one. Yeah. So I don't know if you remember, it's something Leia says to Han uh, or Han when they... So it's after Luke Skywalker gets smacked in the face with a wampa, gets rescued, is on the Hoth base. He's in the, the medical bay. It's right before that very awkward kiss between Leia and Luke which in retrospect is very strange. And yeah, she says that to Han. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are fans of Star Wars who probably don't even really know what a nerf looks like. Look at the photo. Okay, one of them. Yeah, so it's, I mean, 
this is something we'll see a lot in this episode. There are a lot of yak-like creatures in Star Wars. Got a strange tail, this one, though. I mean, you got to throw in a little bit of flavor when you're designing creatures. Yeah, because like it kind of looks like a yak that's got multiple horns. Also, a very common theme in yeah. Star Wars. It's got like it's got sort of this almost like the same horn pattern as like sort of the Manx Lauthen sheep, but then yeah. it's very yak-like. But then it's got like a reptilian armadillo type tail. Also, a very common theme we'll be seeing in this episode, which we've actually talked about in the past of how you know because this is. Even though this is only our second Star Wars episode, it's our five billionth whatever episode looking at kind of fictional creatures. And I think we've talked about this before about, you know, it seems to be the way to go is to throw in a little bit of reptilian characteristics into creatures. And it makes sense. I guess it makes it alien, so to speak. Yeah. Um. Anyways, so the Nerf is a herbivore that is kept primarily for its milk, but is sometimes used for its meat and fur as well. So some morphological details include very blunt teeth, as well as obviously having these very unique three curved horns. Now, I also want to note, uh, and you can see this in your next photo, Simona, this is not to be confused with banthas, which are also similarly yak-like, but much bigger and mainly located on Tatooine. And they are mainly herded by the Tusken Raiders and used as pack animals by them, although sometimes they're also hunted for food and wool. Did they just, like, stuck wool on an elephant or something? I mean, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's very... I love Bantha. They're cool. It kind of reminds me of, like, the creatures. I don't know if you've ever seen the film Quest for Fire. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't thought about that. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, like, the horns... Okay, no, they are, they are not that similar. I mean, they're, like, both, like, sort of fairly large herbivores. But uh, looking at it for the first time, the Banthas morphologically does look quite different because the shape of the horns... It's quite a bit different. It's only got the two. It's very ram-like. They're a lot larger in relation to head size compared to the uh, nerf. The mouth. What's going on with the mouth? It's got lips. I. I mean, well, yeah, it's a, it's a bantha. Of course, it's got lips, and it got a little beard. <laughs> what you think that's weird? But it's got like the skin, sort of almost like human-like lips. Yeah, and the, the, the banthas, I guess. It should also, just to note that Banthas predate Nerfs. And I don't actually know, and Tristan, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Nerfs have actually materialized, really, in definitely not in live-action form. But I don't even know if they've really appeared in, like, the animated stuff. Um, the only image I could find of them was, like, a drawing. I've not seen enough of the animated stuff to confirm or deny this. Um, I know it's definitely not in any of the live action. Well, sorry, the main films. So, yeah, I'm really surprised that's what a nerf looks like. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe that, you know, they make weapons out of those creatures as well. You know, absolutely ridiculous. And I think that's the practice I think I would ban is the, uh, the removal of nerf from nerf guns. Thank you. Thank you for putting thing. your politics into this podcast. <laughs> 
Tristan has now been suspended. Um, so yeah, you know, it's interesting to also see that. So technically the Banthas did actually predate nerfs in that obviously Banthas were used in the first, well, chronologically the first film that was made, but the fourth film in the franchise, A New Hope. And they were basically elephants. And it makes sense. It's a it's a cool look. Uh, not necessarily that difficult to probably get. They filmed this in Tunisia. So yeah, it's just in a practical sense that kind of makes sense. But to go back to kind of the actual in-lore kind of stuff, uh, you know, like I said, they're mostly known from that one throwaway line in Empire Strikes Back. Not really a throwaway line. It's a pretty famous line. But the implications of that and what has been kind of carried on into the expanded universe stuff is that nerfs were just apparently really disgusting and smelly. That's why nerf herder is an insult, as obviously if you work with nerfs, you're probably just as smelly and disgusting as they are. And they seem to be found on most temperate planets. I mean, no wonder they're a bit smelly. Their fur looks very matted. They should brush them once in a while. Always brush your nerf. Yeah, always brush and earth. Thank you for speaking truth to power with that. Do you need to use a comb or do you need to use like a slicker brush for that kind of fur? I'll probably use like a dematting brush. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I'm making a note of this. Thank you for your <laughs> nerf. You've now subscribed to the Nerf Facts podcast. If you want to hear more episodes about this, Simona will be doing a number of um, gr- how to groom your nerf for the next uh, <laughs> couple of uh, episodes. Welcome to our, our new podcast, Nerds on Nerfs. <laughs> well, you know, like, I'm very passionate about Nerf welfare. <laughs> so I think we've just nerfed this podcast. <laughs> no, Sorry. Uh, no, Sorry. no, 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 no. I'm bringing it back, baby. We're bringing it back, okay? Back to an actual podcast about zooarchaeology. So zooarchaeological considerations for the nerf that have nothing to do with, you know, maintaining their, their, their looks. I mean, they're, they're, they seem more or less, it's, it's hard to say what their domestication status is because it's not a real animal, but you know, the fact that they refer to them as herds and nerf herders, you know, maybe we can imply that, they are more of a, a managed herded animal like the reindeer, which we talk about a lot in this podcast, rather than something a bit more domesticated like cattle. Is the yak fully domesticated? I don't actually know. I feel like we might have talked about this in the previous episode, but I've already okay, No, no, the yak, no, it is classed as a domesticated cattle. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So I guess something akin to something that looks like a yak, but is herded like reindeer does. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, speaking realistically, domestication isn't necessarily a, a black and white thing. There are shades of domestication. And, you know, who knows as well how anything works in the Star Wars universe. It's a bit Calvin Ball-like. But, I mean, I feel like you can probably make a case that they might be a bit more of a herded species, not necessarily bred and again, I mean, the difficulty, I guess, is that we really haven't seen them in any of the kind of bigger iterations of Star Wars, which seems surprising. They should get, given they should that get their own of, spin-off. Everyone does. 
Yeah, true. Just a, a docu- an in-law documentary on the nerve. <laughs> but, yeah, but I'm guessing probably, yeah, semi-domesticated, because while so they are herded by the Tuscan raiders, others... No, those are, ba- those are banthas. Those are panthers. Ah. Uh... N- nerfs are herded by nerf herders. <laughs> it's very easy to remember. <laughs> well, but you know, but that might not be what they call themselves. That's just what other people refer to them as. That is true. We may be using a derogatory term this whole yeah, time. That's, you know, if it's used as a derogatory term for someone who smells, then surely the population that in law herds the nerfs probably doesn't like to be called that and call themselves something entirely different. This is true. In my defense, I have no idea. I'm sorry for my ignorance, but maybe Star Wars should actually cover that so that I don't sound ignorant when I talk about this. <laughs> but I guess, assuming that they are semi-domesticated, I guess there would probably be some similarities maybe with the way that we would find their remains as far as kind of, you know, there's a very specific way we see domesticated species, right, in the archaeological record. There's probably going to be a correlation between like, you know, uh, proximity to a kind of site, a domestication site or something like that, and probably related finds to like the secondary products and things like that, you know? Yeah, so I guess, I don't know, like presuming, you know, if they get herded across like a distance, you might make the assumption that the herders are semi-nomadic at least. So maybe like in sort of summer camps or winter camp or winter camps, you might find evidence of sort of butchery of the animals and preservation for the winter there might be some working yeah. of the bones or picking the horn specifically turn into objects utilitarian or otherwise so if that preserved that'd be nice but well the horn cores will be there in this yeah for thing. sure <laughs> and i think the fact that they are found mostly on temperate planets probably also supports that idea that you know we're potentially looking at kind of seasonal uh, sites of occupation and in relation to nerfs. So the Banthas so, yeah. instead <laughs> get herded by Tuscan raiders, but they also get hunted from other people for food, food and wool. Yes. So much like yaks and nerfs and cattle. Yeah, like I said, there's a there's a, a fair amount of yak-like creatures in Star Wars, which again kind of makes sense from a very practical standpoint in that you can basically throw a bunch of fur on a real animal and say that's some kind of creature, right? Include the elephant. Yeah, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Actually, banthas are kind of interesting as well. There's a lot of cultural stuff with Banthas and the Tuscan Raiders, I believe in some of the expanded universe stuff. I don't know. I can't remember if it's been added to the canon lore because there's been a lot of stuff related to the Tuscan Raiders in the television shows like in Boba Fett and The Mandalorian. But there's the Banthas are a really important species to the Tuscan Raiders. And they, you know, they grow up together. There's a whole thing with, you know. Bantha being born around the same time as uh, a, a child in the Tuscan Raider group, and um, you know they they create kind of like a a multi species community, which is really interesting. And it's also just a, an elephant with some fur glued on it. So science fiction is magical, folks. And as we think about that, 
we will take a break and we will get back to some non-yak-like creatures. Come back to episode 57 of Archaeo Animals. We are talking about the archaeology of Star Wars once again, and we are at some non-yak creatures for once. So I want to talk about, and this may be shocking because I think a lot of people want to pretend that this film doesn't exist, but I do want to talk about the Cadu from episode one, The Phantom Menace. Toto? <laughs> no. He just, he, he got stuck with a yak. Okay. It's a strange tall duck with no wings. So yeah, they are mainly rowed by the Gungans of Naboo. And they are apparently what is referred to as a reptavian. So in other words, it's a reptilian creature with avian-like characteristics. Yeah. And I think you can argue that they're probably more amphibious rather than reptilian in some respects. They're able to live on land and in the water, and they also lay eggs. Also kind of like a duck, and they, they do they do kind of look like a duck, actually. I think when I was a kid, I thought they were ducks. Oh, like a crocodile? Like, Well, no, they don't look like a crocodile, but a crocodile is able to live on land and in the water. Yeah, I guess it's the bill part that really throws you off. So, okay, full disclosure, the reason why I wanted to bring these creatures up is when I was a kid, I had an action figure of one, and I was just, I don't know what it was, I was obsessed with it. It was like my favorite Star Wars creature action figure. I use it all the time. I think it, I don't know what it was. There's just something very captivating about a weird, like, duck reptile creature. It's just cool looking. I don't know. I know. It almost looks sort of like a dinosaur that was tried to turn into a duck and then halfway through the, com- the transformation just went, yeah, nah, I'm done. I do think it was, I, th- I do think it is something about the bills, and maybe scalitally, I I, I want to just pitch this out there. Wonder if they're more like platypuses, scalitally. So like a, a, a reptavia malian. <laughs> so like, like I don't know. I feel like they do look duck like, but I've always felt like they look more like a platypus than a duck, at least built wise. So like maybe their skulls have that sort of weird like pincer thing that platypuses have that like it's so you've never seen a platypus skull first of all pause the episode google it uh they got this weird like pincer looking thing out of their skull and they that's what supports the rest of the bill which is kind of more of a leathery type of skin so i don't know that's just my that's my idea. Yeah, see that. So it'll be a lot like a platypus bill, although like the nasal cavity, they're a lot closer to the edge of the mouth than the platypus, while it's more avian in the cadu, where it's sort of a yeah. bit further up the bill, sort of not unlike a duck or just generic waterfowl. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's a bit of a mess uh, when it comes to biology, to be honest. But I feel like the other thing that I want to kind of bring up is that they are bipedal creatures, which I think maybe that's the other thing that I was really obsessed with for some reason, just the fact that they were, you know, they ran on two legs. So I always thought that, I always thought that was really cool. So if we assume they're reptilian, reptavian, maybe we can say that they're t- kind of not too far off from modern real-world lizards in that 
you know, at least 50 species of them can actually run on two legs when necessary, which I don't know if you've seen is kind of funny. No, don't say I have. Like I said, at least 50 species of them can, if, if it's real bad, if they really need to get out there, they can just haul on two legs. And apparently there's been some paleontological work may suggest that older species such as Soripes hadongensis. Apologies. Ooh, you've done the Latin name for a change. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really the powerhouse of this episode, so. <laughs> but yeah, so it seems like this is something that ancestor species of modern day lizards may have also been able to do as part of an evolutionary survival. Yeah. So I guess you have like first impression, like I would say that very much. Yeah, it looks like a dinosaur that was on its way to becoming an avian creature. Yeah, you know what? Now that you say that, it, it kind of looks like, you know, when they do those morphs animations to show, like, evolution of, uh, you know, like you say, a dinosaur to a, a bird. It's like they just pushed pause halfway through. And we're like, that's it. Yeah, sort of like, that's so yeah like, very much like a dinosaur, so like essentially a reptilian. And again, like the avian also makes sense even in a, a sort of a real world comparison but the bill which i guess the most avian looking part of the creature is sort of like something that evolved they evolved like as an adaptation by like you know like being a very water loving creature they got a bill or a muzzle that was best suited to the environment they mostly thrive in hmm. but what's with the True. lack of arms because it's got no, it's got no arms. It's got no wings. Which is the same thing, anyway. It's just gone without. Nah, it just run. It just run. It just run. Because if you don't need them, you don't need them. No, no, they just run. Anyway, to a creature that's maybe a bit less confusing, and again, this is just what I want to talk about because I think I talked about Knights of the Republic a lot in the last episode. But I do want to talk about the Gizka. Hmm. It's loading. Okay. It's just a frog. It's basically just a frog. It's a skull frog, though. That's what I wanted to talk about. So to explain what this is, they are basically exclusive to Bioware's Knights of the Old Republic, uh, the first game in the series. And basically in the game, they randomly get put on your ship and can either be killed off, which is the dark side option, or kept as pets, the light side option. But they're mainly seen as pests, to be honest, and apparently are famous for eating through wiring on spaceships, so most people want to get rid of them. Kind of like the space hamster. I mean, yeah, I guess they're basically the early space hamster, given that this predates Mass Effect? That, yeah, that's your Republic yeah. predates Mass Effect, yeah. yeah I think it- At least the first one, yeah. So even though they are pests, they are also seen as delicacies, as steaks. And I think there's like a throwaway line in the game where you get, you know, the NPC dialogue where one alien kind of says that they're just space chickens, like everything tastes like them. So I think that most will be on the playoff of people just say when they try like a frog or just insert animal here, but oh, it tastes like chicken. It It tastes like Giska. So yeah, I, I mean, I think you kind of pointed this out. So what I want to talk about is their skulls and their weird, like, horn-like things. 
Well, because also, like, depending on which sort of representation of them you look, it just seems like, well, I call it a skull frog because they seem to have this keratinous build, like, well, essentially like this skull outside of their skull. Does that make any sense? No, I mean, well, to be fair, let's be real. None of these creatures really make sense. They're just there for aesthetic and vibes. But, I mean, what I thought of the first time I saw them was that they were like horn frogs. So there's like the Suriname horn frog, which is, uh, I mean, like, should I try the Latin? Oh, uh, it's your powerhouse and all that, by all means. Yep, yep, yeah. Apologies in advance, Ceratophorus cornuta. <laughs> I don't know. I basically almost failed Latin, folks. I took it for like two years. Horrible time. But yeah, so the Suriname horned frog basically has what looks like horns, hence the name, obviously. They're basically just dermal elements that are ossified into the skull. They're also referred to as casks, which are just kind of a broad term that relates to any kind of strange helmet sort of protrusions you see on animals such as birds and other reptiles like chameleons. So maybe it's something like that. I guess like yeah, the description sort of fits. Yeah, like dermal elements that are ossified onto the skull. Yeah, because th- that's a better way of describing this giska to me looking like it's got an outer skull outside of their skull. Because sort of that. I mean, skull frog sounds cool. It's that sort of ossified thing. Again, not Star Wars wise, but that, I know, that sort of reminds me, I don't know, of the Turians in Mass Effect. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, obviously, the Turians, I believe, are kind of based on those reptiles, aren't they? That have those, that cask uh, um, effect. So that does make sense. Although I was also thinking of, you know, if they were skull frogs, are they like the xenomorphs in our episode from a couple of episodes ago when we did xenomorph zooarchaeology? And we found out that they have two skeletons. Oh, Science fiction archaeology is so much fun, folks. Just, just, just get, bring the yaks back. <laughs> no, we're not bringing the yaks back. We're going to the crate dragon. All right. <laughs> that's loud. Okay, that's cool. Oh, he's angry. He's a dragon. Obviously, he's angry. How many legs does he have? Yeah, okay. So I'll get into it. There's a. There's a. I, re, I didn't realize how much lore is in the crate dragon. So it's technically been part of the franchise since uh, A New Hope from when you first come onto Tatooine in that film, you see its skeleton as part of the broader landscape. So in the sands, that huge skeleton is a crate dragon. And the crate dragons are actually a native inhabitant of the planet. And the weird thing, when I looked up on Wikipedia, because obviously that's where you go to for your Star Wars information, the... The, the skeleton that's on Tatooine that you see in the film is referred to as a juvenile, and I have no idea where that comes from. Like, maybe it's a, a guesstimate based on its size, but, like, I was looking, I couldn't find the actual citation as to where that's from. It's got to be size. But now it depends. Is it, is it, so it's a reptilian species? Yes. There's something about the mouth and the teeth. It's very fish yeah, I mean, that's kind of, the skeleton always reminded me of a big fish. So like some of the angles, because I'm looking at more photos now, when it's got its mouth open, depending on the angle, it just really reminds me of a great white shark. Yeah, yeah, I get that. 
it's obviously you know it's it's a mix of things isn't it like in actuality yeah. i mean the, the teeth are creepy enough to be fish so what makes it a bit more confusing is that and i'm not sure if this is like canon lore now but it seems to be like different subspecies and i think realistically speaking this is them trying to get around the fact that it's been shown in various ways in various medium which makes sense i mean that's a great way to kind of include all the depictions of it as canon so there seems to be two subspecies that are mainly seen so you have the canyon crate dragon which is somewhat smaller and runs on four legs now this is the version you would see in a in some of the video games like my seal republic and that's what i usually think of when i think of crate dragons and then you have this greater crate dragon which is much larger much more dragon-like and this is what the skeleton from a new hope is from now, the weirder thing that really complicates this is that there was a crate dragon that finally made its live action debut in the Mandalorian TV series. And this one had 16 limbs, could spit acid. So it, it's not even one of those subspecies. Speciation. Where did the 16 limbs come from, though? To walk really, really, really fast. Look, I mean, how does that work? How do they work, though? Think of, I'm thinking about it morphologically. How does that work? Because they're not very well spaced out, so they must be bumping into each other all the time. Because I was like, oh, like, um, so in my brain, when I was trying to work this out, I was thinking of, like, centipedes. But even then, there's a very specific type of movement that centipedes and millipedes have, right, with all those limbs. So. Maybe it's a similar. Do, do they burrow? Yes. So the one that has 16 limbs does burrow okay in the tv series so i guess that explains it maybe yeah you'll, you'll, you'll make sense yeah this sort of centipede like but it's got with like tiny with tiny little hands tiny baby hands so they're obviously extremely dangerous as such they are highly prized as hunting trophies so i guess you would assume a lot of the kind of material culture and archaeological record of these species is probably going to be hunting trophies. But the other thing that I wanted to talk about is that they do have a secondary product. They actually produce pearls. So in the lore, basically, they swallow boulders and stones to kind of keep in their digestive tract, and it helps break up the food that they have in their stomachs. And, you know, it's kind of inspired by the actual pearl-making processes of mollusks. This would eventually become a... Um, a pearl, except obviously in real life, mollusks basically do this when debris gets stuck in their soft tissue and they create the pearl exterior as a protective mechanism. It sounds like they've mixed two things because, yeah, like you mentioned the pearl making process, but this sort of keeping stones in the digestive tract reminds me of chickens instead that will have grit. Oh, yeah, of course. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, that is interesting that they've kind of, I mean, again, we've talked about this. This is uh, the the kind of theme of this episode is how do we mix as many things together to make it weird and fantastical and fictional. But yeah, I didn't even think about the chicken thing. And that makes a bit more, not that it makes a bit more sense, but it's, you're right. It's definitely combining those two to create that lore. It's just for crate dragons, this was less of a protective me mechanism and more of a consequence of boulders being rolled around their guts for so long. And these were obviously very valuable. And even Jedi would sometimes take the pearls and put them in their lightsabers. 
So I guess also in a way, finding the actual pearl, that would be absolutely have to be a byproduct of hunting. So the way I understand it, these pearls do not get expelled to the digestive system. They just remain in there and sort of roll around. Yeah. So it's a, basically would be a byproduct of hunting, if not scavenging for some reason, but probably hunting. Well, you'd have to expel them at some point. Otherwise, the whole stomach would just fill with pearls and they'll just die. I mean, I can't really profess to saying that I know all of how the digestive tract of a crate dragon works. don't you? Their welfare is important. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm so behind on my xenobiological welfare information. I don't know. So real quick, before we wrap up and go to our, our next segment, I do want to really quickly talk about the Ronto. So not a yak, but another Tatooine inhabitant. Sorry, folks, but let's be real. A lot of Star Wars properties take place in Tatooine. So there's a lot of creatures that are from Tatooine. They're used as a mount by the Jawas. They're also reptilian. They're very tall, very long necks, and kind of as a little behind-the-scenes tidbit that maybe explains a bit of how they work. Their design was a combination of an elephant, a rhino, and a dinosaur. And the latter specifically comes from the fact that the special effects team, Industrial Light and Magic, literally just used their Brachiosaurus model from Jurassic Park to create the Ronto model when they inserted a CGI model of it in the 1997 special edition of A New Hope, which is hilarious. And I mainly just... Yeah, well... I just wanted to bring them up because technically I have eaten Ronto. Well, you know, Ronto wraps. So I have unsurprisingly gone on the nerd pilgrimage to the Galaxy's Edge, which is the Star Wars theme park at Disney World. And they do serve Ronto wraps, which are basically just a bunch of really nice pork and sausage in a really peppery sauce with coleslaw and pita bread. Uh, So I'm going to just assume that Ronto just tastes like that. It's really nice. Highly recommend. But yeah. So another example of reptile characteristics being thrown onto a creature to make it science fiction. Simona, thoughts? Well, all the ones I was going to say got spoiled already, because I was going to say it kind of looks like a dinosaur with like elephant ears (laughs) and uh, and, like a rhino, not beak, but you know. And yeah, that's exactly what it is. So, yeah, I just think it's funny. I had no idea that little tidbit that it was literally just a, a reused model from Jurassic Park, which explains a lot. But yeah, and I guess while we think about how everything really just looks like a dinosaur in the Star Wars universe, we will take a break and we will come back with our final segment of non Tatooine creatures. I promise. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 57 of Archaeo Animals. We're talking about the zoo archaeology of Star Wars. And I promise, I swear, this segment we will at least not really talk about Tatooine creatures. But I mean, come on, honestly, so much of Star Wars takes place on Tatooine, it's really hard to not talk about them. So we are finally off of Tatooine now. And you might recognize this one Simona, the Wampa. It's Bigfoot. I mean, yeah, I guess. Snow Bigfoot. Well, I mean, that, 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 that is a, a, a folklore creature, yes. <laughs> well, the yes, the adop- really. Yeah. yeah, or the Indomitable Snowman. Yeah, one, one of those. So, wampas are potentially the main predator species on the ice planet of Hoth. 
I mean, realistically, we don't really see a lot of creatures on a hoff. It doesn't look very nice there. No, they're not really. So they're most notably seen in Empire Strikes Back. They attack Luke at the very beginning of the film. And they're kind of the first, like, enemy of the film. Uh, so, yeah. So, as Simona has already said, they're basically like the Domino Snowmen or Yetis. They're big, white, furry creatures with those rounded ram-like horns that apparently just are on every creature in Star Wars. Why not? I mean, yeah, they, they do they do make things look interesting, I guess. So they inhabit the frost caves of Hoth, but will occasionally venture out looking for prey before dragging it back into its den to be consumed. So in, in that sense, I feel like we can make a, a bit of a real-world connection to bears, at, at least in, you know, that kind of scavenging mentality. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch, I know. Yeah, it'd be like sort of a polar bear, but polar bears, I mean, they, they will scavenge, they'll hunt, they're, 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 they're just angry. Yeah, I mean... And, and, and rightfully so, they have many reasons to be angry, but yes, they are angry. <laughs> yeah, so, like, yeah, polar bears, I think, are, like, the first kind of point of call in as far as kind of trying to compare it to real-world species. Uh, obviously, they're both in very similarly cold environments, but also they seem to be exclusive carnivores, like polar bears. Although other bear species, like brown bears, can occasionally scavenge. So, I think, in that case, maybe we can shift the conversation a bit and instead of talking about the remains we can potentially talk about the taphonomic signatures and how the wampa probably have a very unique or at least identifiable taphonomic signature kind of like bears so bears when they scavenge and they chew on bone and we find that archaeologically you, you find that the main kind of characteristics are like really fragmented bone, particularly long bone, and uh, has evidence of furrowing and scooping. So kind of the long, like entrenched, like indentations, uh, pitting that like kind of bumpy bits and pieces here and there, and like really smooth like surfaces at the kind of fractured edges of bone. At least that's my guess. Yeah, I think like, they would have a very distinct sort of signature as well on the bones, the wampus, because I'm, I'm looking at a close-up of one with its mouth open, and oh, 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 boy, they need a dentist. What's going on there? Because all the teeth seem to be pointed, so they have a succession of canines in a variety of sizes, almost fish-like, again, but sort of all of varying sizes. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or rhythm, except for maybe on the lower jaw, there's almost like two sets so like a four total of lower canines that are much bigger than all the other teeth but all the incisors look equally sort of pointy but they're more slender in the maxilla than they are in the jaw yeah so i wonder if for wampas we maybe see more pitting in that case definitely like probably a lot of frag like sharp fragmented bone Although, obviously, in the film, when you do see them and they're munching on bone, it's just that kind of cartoon, like, femur, big femur bone, gnawing on a turkey leg type thing. Yeah, because also, like, I can't really see what their molars are like, but, of course, like, you know, a lot of the bone crushing would be done with the molars, but then if they just have, like, endless rows of canines, I mean, they'll be fine for sort of tearing flesh, but in terms of crushing bone, maybe not, actually. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously. Actually, you know, no, I, I lie. I lie. Crocodiles do that just fine. So. Oh, true. Yeah. <laughs> and we have actually, in like a few episodes ago, I believe we have talked about crocodilian taphonomy, which I believe is also kind of, you know, very fragmented bone, uh, splintered bone. So I guess that would be more of the taphonomic signature than perhaps what we actually see in the film. Yeah, because I think like it would probably be very distinct because it's a. Uh... Yeah, it's just like all these sort of teeth with like not much of a rhyme or rhythm because there's some like, you know, you'd expect a, a, some sort of conformity in the size of the teeth or like your incisors, your canines, premolars, but it just seems to be sort of very all over the place. Yeah. But hey, it's science fiction, baby. There are no rules, really. Anyway... Kind of related to the the wampas, I feel like we should talk about their main prey and really the only other creature you see on Hoth, which is the Tauntaun. And that's me getting my my long my actual Long Island accent really comes out when I say that. I apologize. Okay. I try so hard. It's another yak thing. Well, not quite yak, sort of yak thing. I mean I mean, yeah. So I lied. There there was at least one other yak creature yeah. on this yeah. list. It looks like the the yak snow version of that other dinosaur one with the platypus bill. Yes, the kadu. So like the kadu, the tauntauns are bipedal mounts. Although, uh, in, in contrast to the kadu, they do have arms. They're little T-Rex kind of arms, which are fun. Yeah, because I guess so- yeah, they're sort of like a kadu, but they're like more like a kadu and... The, the what was the yak again? The first one, the nerf. The nerf. Yes, a kadoo and a nerf and a baby in the snow, and it was this. I, yeah, I guess so. So, for those who don't know, for some reason, they're furry creatures with curved horns. Again, those horns making a comeback and big claws, uh, which some kind of in lore texts suggest that's why they're really well suited for traversing Hoth. The, the the claws allow them to get a nice grip on the really icy and snowing landscapes on the planet. And the thing I want to point out that is really unique about the Tauntauns is that they have four nostrils. Oh, I noticed that. Yeah, no, it's something that I think when I was a kid, I really didn't notice. And then as I got older, I was like, is that, do they have four nostrils? Because <laughs> it's such a, a very strange... Because usually... You know, usually you'd say like, oh, they have extra arms, they have extra eyes, they have extra legs. I've never really seen a science fiction creature that was like, we'll have extra nostrils. Yeah, because almost like the top nostrils almost look like would be the start of an elephantine sort of tusk, not tusk. Oh, what what do elephants have? I mean, could you be more specific? The nose. Trunk. The trunk, that's the one. Kind (laughs) of looks like an elephant trunk. Yeah. And then sort of like the, the maxilla kind of looks like a camel's. I, I do like the tauntauns. I think they're one of the more innovative kind of creature designs in that it, it, it simultaneously looks very familiar, but not familiar at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the face is quite mammalian, but then again, the teeth, again, you've got, well, they make more sense <laughs> in the tauntaun, but it's sort of these sort of basically canines all across the board, like, or just pointy teeth throughout. and But then they've also got that those are ossified sort of dermal plates that you see in some of the reptilian creatures. So, like, aside from the horns, it's got all those other bits sticking out. 
the, mm. the, the ossified thermal plates. I don't know, I wouldn't call them plates, but... So yeah, there. I don't really have in-lore explanations for that. I do have an in-universe lore kind of explanation for the nostrils. So apparently the larger set of nostrils would be used only really for intensive activities that required a lot of oxygen intake. And then the smaller set was used for when tauntauns were less active as it also kept out snow and things like that. So weirdly enough, they're not that entirely dissimilar from real life creatures that also have four nostrils, which are mostly fish. And uh, fish actually, so the fish have multiple pairs of nostrils on each side of their face. One nostril allows water in and the other one lets water out of their nasal cavity. So kind of similar in that sense. It's one of those things that like makes sense on a very base science fiction level for sure. And as you mentioned, Simona, they do have a bit of a reptilian look to them. And in some texts that I found, they are referred to as reptomammalian. So underneath all those layers of fur is actually a layer of scaly skin. And then following that is blubber, which is why in Empire Strikes Back, when Han has to keep Luke Skywalker somewhere warm and safe overnight, he slices open a tauntaun and puts Luke inside. It's and not very nice. It's not nice. And then he obviously says one of his famous lines, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. And that's obviously because Blubber has an extremely strong odor, but also provides insulation. So that's why it was useful as a, a living uh, sleeping blanket, basically. So, I guess, so archaeologically, we could maybe say, hey, there could be evidence for tauntaun butchery for blubber, maybe? We don't really know if Hoffs had, like, actual, you know, humanoid or relatively sentient inhabitants, so I don't know if there was ever a culture for tauntaun blubber, but I guess you could maybe make a case for that potentially being something to look for. Uh, we see it in early prehistoric archaeological sites with regards to the use of blubber from marine mammals such as seals, uh, butchery marks on bone that represent dismemberment and skinning, of course, but also associated artifacts with residual evidence of blubber that could be identified using lipid analysis and isotope analysis. So maybe. I don't know. And also, I guess you could get it, even though there's no necessarily any the sort of humanoid populations on the planet, you might get the odd, so I don't know, say like a sh- shipwreck site, people had to fend off for themselves while help arrived, and then they would have to well, hunt the local fauna. Mm. So there might be some evidence of exploitation, but not necessarily by a culture per se, but just people that happen to be on that planet for a reason or another. Yeah, and obviously we know from the film that the rebels have kind of created a base there, so it could be that they have to actually scavenge tauntauns for blubber, for, you know, fuel or something. Again, just just two archaeologists making up stuff as we go along. Anyway, real quick, I want to go to our next one, the Kowakian Monkey Lizard which is most known for their appearance in the form of Salacious Crumb, Jabba the Hutt's weird little pet guy from Return of the Jedi. Oh. Exactly. That's why I wanted to talk about them. They are various colors, 
brown, red, blue. They're basically treated as the space version of a parrot. And I want to talk about the fact that they should not be called monkey lizards. I don't get it. I get the monkey part. They're bipedal creatures with tails that have similar motions. They are found on trees. And I can kind of get the reptilian part is that because, you know, they have tufts of fur, but they also have this kind of scaly looking hide. But if we're trying to sort out what reptile they're closest to, I wouldn't necessarily say a lizard. I would probably argue for something like a turtle because of their weird beaks. And if anything, looking at them again, like I've never seen this before in my life, what came to my mind first was an eye eye. Yeah, yeah. Over a monkey. That makes sense. And like the tufts of fur, the look like they've just had it. Uh, except for the, the beak, obviously. So I say reptilian, but also in a way, you know what that beak also reminds me, which again is not reptilian at all. What? The mouth of an octopus. Oh, yeah. I see that. So for me, I always thought turtle. So like turtles, the beak is called the ramthopeca, ramphotheca, which is a bit of keratin sheath over their mandible maxilla. And I, it, the shape always kind of remind me of like a little turtle beak. And obviously birds also have this, which make up their beak as we see them. But I also, I get what you mean by the octopus as well. I don't see lizard, right? Like at, at the very least, it, I don't see lizard. No, because also like the rest, like beak aside, the rest of the mouth, the mandible and maxilla kind of reminds me more of a frog. Yes. Which like, it's almost like it's got like a frog jaw and maxilla with the head of a, of a little, a little owl sat on top of it, at least from the photo that I'm looking at. You just see, like, it's almost like two distinct things, and you have the two little yellow eyes. But uh, no, tangent aside, I would have thought, yeah, something akin to either, yeah, like a turtle or like a keratin. She's more like, much like in an octopus beak, but essentially an eye eye. So, yeah, clearly. Disney, you should hire as archaeologists to do your creature development. These should be called a Kowakian eye-eye turtle frog. Oh, I just found another frog. That's terrifying. Oh no, I don't like this. Is it the is it is it the picture of the puppet? Uh yeah, I think might be is it in the Mandalorian? I think there might be one. Uh, I will say I am the owner of two of them. I have two puppets of them in my house right now. Thank you, Disney. Uh, oh. Okay, so we will go away from that. We will we will cleanse ourselves of that image because they are a bit freaky and talk about our final very strange creature from Star Wars. And that is the Tuca Cat. Oh. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's They're right. just cats. They're just cats. I just wanted to talk about cats at the very end of the episode. It's a nice cleanser after the Quackian monkey turtle lizard eye eye thing. They're just they're just cats. They just look like cats. They come in various breeds, most famously the loft cats from the planet Lothal, which is seen in the TV series Rebels and also as an animatronic in the Disney theme parks. And they're very cute and I love them so much. They are literally just cats, except they also have like bird-like talons and like really big frog faces. And they're just they're just so cute. 
swooshy tail and talons. You just want to squish their faces. I love them. They got just big, big, big frog-like faces. I love that. And I don't, I couldn't tell you really what the evolutionary advantage a talon would provide a cat. Hold the bird down. I guess. I don't understand why the frog face, other than maximum cuteness. Well, because that could be, yeah, to bribe sort of human cultures in the vicinities into giving them food. True, yes. So they don't have to hunt. And then the talons, I mean, provided that much like cats, are, well, cats are not arboreal, but, you know, have the ability to climb on trees. If their hunting strategy is to pounce on their prey from the tree, then the talons, much like a bird of prey, would help them sort of hold them down. Yeah, and they seem to be, in the way that they are portrayed in kind of Star Wars, they seem to be in the process of being domesticated as pets. They're mainly seen as like pest hunters, and they do seem mostly tamed. But yeah, I mean, to be fair, Star Wars technically does play, take place in a long time ago when it got so far, far away. So, you know, they may not be up to the same level of domestication that we are in the real world. But yeah, that is a whirlwind journey through the zooarchaeology of Star Wars. Simona, how do you feel? Um, I'll tell you next episode. <laughs> yeah. I need to process some of this. Yeah, so I guess while you process that, if folks listening want to make sure that they subscribe to our podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, and tell your friends to subscribe as well. Like us and leave reviews. That's always really helpful and nice. You can find us on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. Let us know if you want another Star Wars episode, because Lord knows there are so many creatures and Simona's sanity still seems to be intact. We could probably break that down a little bit further by doing another episode. But yeah, otherwise... It's been Alex Fitzpatrick. And Simona Falanga. Hire us, Disney. We will make Star Wars good. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find us on Twitter at Archeo Animals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Laura Johnson. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I came from a low-income family that was that were struggling. You see how hard life can get. GCE became a part of my life because I don't want my family to fall back into that. I never thought education would take me this far. I'm still young. I still have a lot to do in my life and just want to get things done the way I want with a good education under me. I'm Stacy, and Grand Canyon University helped me find my purpose. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Come.